Product Management. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Real World Product Management. My guest today is Peter Dwyer. Peter, hi. How are you? I'm well. I'm good. Thanks, Vlad. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm great. Hopefully, we're all staying healthy and sane in this uh, new reality and new world. Uh, so, can you please tell us more about you and your product management experience? What is it that you do and how you do it? Yeah. So, uh, my name is Peter Dwyer. I'm a product manager uh, at Nielsen. Um, so, working in there, I've been a in product leadership for about three years now, but I've been a product manager for a little over a year. Um, I kind of entered the role. Um, kind of working my way through. I think everyone who listens here who is, has got a background in product management knows from experience that sometimes the product management role can kind of be a, a product of circumstance, if you will. I don't know if that many people naturally find themselves in the product management track. I don't think there is a real well-defined one. It kind of finds you to a certain extent. Um, so I started as an analyst at Nielsen in um, what's called the Nielsen Bases Division or the Innovation Practice, um, which kind of helps um, manufacturers around the world um, evaluate new product ideas and bring them to market and kind of make some volumetric impact assessments or sales forecasting for these new innovations that go to market. Um, so I started as an analyst, worked my way through into a sales operation role, um, so bidding and scoping one-off projects. Um, that's what kind of what our business model was based on is individual projects uh, with deliverables and defined deliverables that are delivered to clients. And then I uh, transitioned to product leadership and began as more of a business analyst role uh, before assuming more of a junior product management role um, about two and a half years ago. And then um, staying in that role through the launch of a solution and service and kind of maintaining support. Um, getting a lot more uh, know-how and experience from the support portal or the help desk. Um, I kind of felt like uh, I was ready to make a move into product management and kind of got elevated into the product manager role of that service um, a little over a year ago, as I said. Great. And by the way, since you mentioned you that you participate in a lot of product ownership ceremonies, participate in sprint planning and so on, as well as solving uh, some high-level problems, leveraging relationships with other teams, working on strategy, that's more of a product manager rather than product owner uh, responsibilities. In my mind, uh, product owner, product manager, completely different roles on the different levels. I understand that in your case, there's uh, some sort of symbiosis. Uh, you guys kind of merge them somewhere in together. Uh, maybe you could elaborate a little bit on this for us. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great point to add. Um, we're a pretty lean organization. Um, so as I was speaking to, um, we were talking about earlier, our role, uh, product manager role is a little different than um, probably what other people in the industry are used to. Uh, in my role as a product manager, not only am I responsible for the backlog and the roadmap of a product that we're doing, uh, that we're working on, or that we're assigned to, or that we kind of pitch and get assignment towards, or we win the resource battle. Um, we also do maintain, uh, we run standups. Um, we also run through the groomings. So I'm actively writing stories, writing requirements. And at the same time, I'm going through and grooming them with my engineers to understand exactly what that, that going through that sizing estimate, um, tagging for release, tagging into sprint, um, and managing the queue, managing the agile board with my team directly one-to-one. -one. Um, while also being responsible for product health metrics and being able to assign and uh, or not assign identify needs in the roadmap so kind of keeping in touch with my commercial stakeholders um in a regular cadence to understand what needs there are in the solution or in the platform in my case a little bit more on my my recent assignment um so it really is kind of touch and go a little bit all over the place may um adding a little bit more challenge to the mix is that we're in a global business so um kind of accustomed to the early mornings with Europe or Russia in some cases when we got to be a little bit more Russia specific um, or Latam. So working around a lot of time zones to manage that relationship um, in addition to, um, to everything else. So, and then lastly, kind of going hand in hand with the commercial relationship is also uh, working closely with product marketing to align on like 
something that we can do to get communication out, get the word out, bring new news to clients uh, when we have new features available, kind of working to establish that sales playbook um, or pitch deck when we need to as well. Understanding those market segments, we have a direct role in that um, from almost like a vertically integrated role for the entire product um, experience. So scrum manager or scrum master, product owner and product manager kind of all wrapped up in one role. Um, again, we're, we're pretty limited when it comes to that. Uh, very similar to a lot of other organizations out there, but it's uh, just makes it a little bit more rewarding, I think, in my experience. Definitely makes it more challenging. So you're saying you were watching product metrics. Um, obvious question is, what are the metrics that you're watching? But before we dive deeper into that, what are the products that you're working on so we can understand uh, why those metrics make sense? So let's break it down into two different questions. What are the products that you're working on and uh, which metrics are you watching and why they make sense? Yeah, so what do you do here? Uh, that's the question. Um, what what is work? Um, so our business unit within Nielsen has a discrete offering of um, a multitude of market research products or solutions as we've kind of packaged them up. Um, so it's a survey-based research uh, methodology with uh, numerous applications. So we have discrete offerings where there's one format here, another format there. Um, they have very specific individualized deliverables for that solution. And then they're kind of sold as a project uh, one-off basis. It's not like um, not like a lot of typical SaaS out there where it's based on licensing fees. Um, these are kind of more of a commodity that are sold or commissioned. They're, they're project engagements that are commissioned by the clients. And then they're run uh, leveraging the platform um, that we kind of manage and where we host these services and solutions. Um, so that can be anything from qualifying a new uh, soft drink idea to a new uh, bath wash to... Um, helping clients understand the shelf uh, dynamics in terms of like managing an innovation pipeline. So let's say you've got multiple flavors of a soft drink, you need to define or d decide which one is the best. Um, we have a, we have an offering in the platform that allows you to do that and um, kind of understand the revenue trade-off for having an optimal line and understanding what's going to happen um, in the market when you swap out a new uh, stock keeping unit or a SKU. Um, in what price points got to maximize volume or what, what, which price points maximize revenue as well. Um, so that's, that's a little bit more what we do. So when it comes to product metrics or product health metrics, um, personally, myself, I'm pretty uh, commercial oriented when it comes to that. So I'm really looking at unit volume, <laughs> price per unit and uh, total revenue or total booked revenue generated for the for the solution that we're managing or under management at the time. Sorry to interrupt, uh, but I just have to ask for my own sanity's sake, what is a unit here? Is that a single survey? Is that a contract? Is that something else? Um, you can think of it as a single proposal for a project. So a single project, standalone. As a product manager, I'm looking at support burden. So if we doesn't matter if we're generating a lot of revenue. If we have a lot of help test tickets, we're looking at um, that's a support burden. <laughs> we, we need to kind of re reassess what the solutions got or what what what's holding back the platform from delivering that without support burden because um, it adds up. It means that it's more man hours spent. We're, we're a pretty lean team. So if we're getting pulled into tickets a lot to kind of help and guide the conversation and uh, troubleshooting or trying to find a resolution for something, it's less time spent on other work that uh, we would like to ideally spend our time on. So, so you effectively have a dollar value or other uh, direct dollar cost per ticket. Yeah, I mean, you can you can pretty much come back to that if you do simple math uh, a little bit, like just assuming that, you know, standard ticket for a project is going to be four hours of labor from our team, or maybe a little bit less than that kind of depends on where you kind of cut the baby in the middle, so to speak, or draw the line. Um, and then kind of averaging that out, you know, each project uh kind of applying that equation that like we got 500 tickets this month, we sold 250. That means we had two tickets per, per project. That's a, that's a support burden that has a tangible um, monetary value that we could have, we could be doing without, or we could be working to reduce. Um, so it's just as important almost because a lot of the largest user base we have within our organization is internal. Um, it's not necessarily the clients that are executing these projects. We we sell them the vision of having results within the, within the platform for these projects they commission, um, but the execution is mostly internal. So when we run into user issues, a lot of that means when 
we have internal associates that can't use the tool correctly, or they struggle to use the tool, or maybe the feature just isn't there, which, you know, to be honest, we've all, I think you kind of run into that issue where you define a feature, you kind of go through that discovery process, you you ship, and turns out you miss a requirement. And depending on how important that requirement was, uh, the blast radius can be pretty significant. Um, and it can result in a pretty huge support burden unintentionally. Um, so we do keep an eye on that from, from our perspective, from, from my perspective, at least. So kind of hand in hand, making sure we have operational excellence internally, but also making sure we got commercial excellence too when it comes to the product being in market or, you know, commercial viability rather, sorry. Um, making sure that we are where we kind of want to be from a, from a commercial point of view. Right. Making sure you're hitting certain financial KPIs. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I like the commercial excellence as a term. I, I think I'm going to use it in my uh, conversations moving forward. Thank you. Um, that was interesting. Uh, so you mentioned discovery and collecting of uh, the requirements process. So let's let's look at this from a slightly different angle. As a matter of fact, let's um, uh, get to a higher point of view. And um, there's probably a discovery process across the whole product lifecycle. You're collecting requirements and, and do analysis and do other stuff. So what is this process? What are the challenges or what are your war stories around um, each step of this discovery? Or what are you guys dealing with uh, as the discovery progresses across uh, different points in the product uh, lifecycle? Yeah, yeah, that that sounds good. Um, so, so in our framework for our software development lifecycle, we usually kind of work within uh, discovery, development, deployment, and those kind of break out into a few different things, um, which I'll kind of go into a bit more detail there. Um, but another thing to note about our business unit is it's kind of in transition. So we've got this. Um, software application that we use to kind of service a lot of these solutions but we're also um, we have a lot of legacy technology that we're doing or we we are replatforming a lot of services that were kind of standalone consulting engagements without being like a specific product um, we have to kind of draw the line and minimize variation and identify those minimal requirements to replatform that solution as an actual software offering. Um, so we have to understand what is the survey variation, uh, what are the, the deliverables that are usually expected with that service, and what are the reporting needs? Um, I mean, uh, for anyone that's kind of working in a in a business area or kind of a commercial services or consulting services, everything's about a PowerPoint report. Um, so we have to kind of have that in the back of our mind at all times when we're replatforming these services. How do we get this down to a PowerPoint? Um, or what's the expected delivery mechanism to the client? Um, so that's something we have to consider. So we have to, our discovery process is almost forensic um, in that we have to understand the legacy application, the legacy processes, the legacy tools and teams that are that are um, leveraged throughout the execution in the, in the old world. And then we kind of have to size to fit into this new application that leverages um, the automation. So we think about a survey being programmed in a legacy world that would be programmed by um, a team or a vendor, and it would be published. Uh, it would go live in a production instance and it would collect the data. And then uh, afterwards, we would have another team manage the tabulation of that data by hand. In the new world, what we would do is we would say, okay, here's the minimum survey requirements. Um, we've defined these as what they're going to be. We're going to automate the survey creation, and then we're going to automate the tabulation of the data itself. Um, but we have to kind of figure that out um, along the ways, or we have to kind of get down to the most granular level of the lowest possible, the highest level of detail, uh, the lowest common denominator, understand every process that's going on in these legacy tools and teams. Um, and then we use that to guide a little bit more of the software development, at least for the minimum viable product. Um, and that's kind of like a race against the clock <laughs> in our book. Um, when it comes to defining the MVP, you kind of break it up into two platforms of discovery, I guess. You have your MVP discovery, like you're just trying to like, cut and choose and kind of picking picking and choosing who's going to live, who's going to die in terms of features. Uh, and, get out. and then that second part is, okay, 
this didn't make the initial cut. Why? Okay, I understand why. Now we're going to put it in the backlog. Uh, we need a little bit more time to figure out what's the actual value to the user for this. Okay, we've got a value for the user. Is there a monetary value? Can we can we upsell uh, for delivery or inclusion of this feature? Yes or no? Or is this an operational efficiency? Is this a margin play? Um, or is this just simply uh, the cost of entry, like something that we're going to have to eat the time in terms of dev, in terms of um, in time and resources? Is it just going to be that minimum cost of entry to get our foot in the door to get our clients to adopt this new solution? Because kind of goes back a little bit more to our business. Um, like we're a business that's in transition. So when we are replatforming these services, um, it's as much as winning over our internal users as it is our external clients. Um, so we've got to, the name of the game does become a little bit of conversion. So it's kind of our discovery process is, I wouldn't say tainted, but it's definitely informed a lot by um, that goal of conversion and adoption um, away from a legacy service. Interesting. Uh, and looks like you guys are doing a great job given how small the team is. Um, and and listen, while listening to all of this, I still have this one question and this may sound like an interview, but please don't treat it as such. It's just the curiosity because every organization kind of has it defined in a different way. So what is, how do you define MVP? What is an MVP for you? Uh, I think for us, it becomes, it's kind of trying to harmonize what we think is the, the, the MVP and what commercial stakeholders think is the MVP. And it's just trying to get to a compromise somewhere in the middle where it's, it's commercially acceptable for what we want to push out to market. Um, and that, that's always where the challenge comes in. Like you always have to manage those commercial expectations and you have to, you, you have to have a valid reason and you almost make it into a trade-off situation. Um, you try to give them enough of a carrot to say, Hey, this is what we think we can get done. And, and we can get X amount of deliverables out in Y amount of time. The, the Z over here, that's, that's going to have to come a little bit after. Is that palatable or is that something that like we need to spend an additional three to four months of dev work to get out the door? Um, so it kind of comes down to getting, getting the right stakeholders in the room to understand, hey, can you get this in front of a client? Could you close a sale with just this in the spec um, of what this solution is offering? Sounds easier said than done. <laughs> um, but sometimes it kind of comes down to, um, it really is as much as like, do you think you can sell this? Okay, why not? Um, if you have this and this or this, would you be able to sell it then? Um, but it's really, we have like, we kind of have a cheat sheet, I guess, in our organization since right now we're still in the transition of replatforming and transitioning a lot of this business to a product focused mindset or product oriented delivery, um, where we kind of have like a good established service Rolodex, if you will, to pull from where it makes that a little bit easier, but for newer solutions that we have that are like kind of a, a bit of a ways out, but like kind of like the next suite of solutions that we want to deliver or get onto the platform is kind of like, I, I don't want to use the term, but like virgin products, and, <laughs> um, just like completely new to market stuff that we want to build. That is going to be a little bit tougher. And that's a situation um, I haven't been in quite yet, but I know that like from like an MVP standpoint, we, we have a little bit easier, but it's definitely a, it can definitely be like pulling teeth sometimes with commercial folks to get it in there in the kindest way possible. Um, it's understandable, at least from my professional perspective, uh, from our professional experience. And sometimes uh, we, this is how I can relate to this. Sometimes we would show the business and, and we generally call them the business could be sales, could be a PMO, could be anybody. Uh, we would show the business, um, the roadmap and, and the, our roadmaps are usually broken down in the quarters so they can um, they can deal with them easier and everybody would get very excited and we will show them the piece of functionality that are coming down the road uh, on the roadmap and there's always this one person uh, there's, there's always this one uh, particular 
person that would uh, look at the roadmap, they would point it to a single feature or capability or functionality on the roadmap somewhere in the fourth quarter, uh, almost at the end of a at the end of a roadmap, and would say, get very excited about it and say, this is this is the best seller. Uh, I can I can totally sell someone today if we would have that feature. Can we have it now? Like, what would it take to have it now? And uh, by sheer luck, or um, I don't know, by uh, by an by an accident or 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 whatever, uh, that would be the only feature that requires this almost the waterfall uh, sequence of events. So you have to make certain things happen, and that's the only uh, feature that's the only capability that actually requires four quarters of development, uh, but that's the only one they would care about. And uh, that's that's my next question, uh, really. How mature would you say your stakeholders are? If they're asking for this feature, this capability, how well do they understand that certain things have to happen in like almost like a waterfall uh, fashion? Uh, so. You know, they realize that there's one thing that enables another, enables another, and that's when the magic happens, or they, they believe everything can be done by Friday? <laughs> that's a great question, Vlad. Um, and it's actually very pressing. So five years ago, I don't know if I would have been able to answer that question, <laughs> no, honestly, um, just because it was a different setting. Um, we hadn't even launched the first real standalone solution. so the understanding at the time was very different from what it is today. Whereas today we have um, a business unit leader or president of the business that understands what the product focus is and what it is, even though they may not have exposure to the, the, the software development lifecycle, they at least understand that like, okay, there's, there's trade-offs to be made here. And um, it's incredibly time like good timing on part of this podcast um but we've been kind of on a full court press in 2020 from our organization to go out and not just it's not just the commercial stakeholders that need to be aware of the software development process it's it's the users themselves that need to like understand and internalize how how the sausage gets made like everyone wants to make their client happy and everyone wants to like their own private like mansion in terms of like what the software has to offer for them but you have to educate them a little bit more along the way in terms of what it is so we recently did an exercise um we we kind of run this organization within the organization or we kind of run this group of stakeholders within the organization we refer to as our champions um they kind of disseminate some information, be it release notes or upcoming features we've got. Uh, you can never have too many points of contact with the org. So we just try to use them to facilitate that, that those channels as much as possible. But uh, we recently walked them through a few features. And just like for compare and contrast, we walked them through um, a simple checkbox. You know, um, what you or I would probably call like um, a UI um, feature, but uh, that UI feature that started out as three stories expanded scope into taking 16 stories. And we kind of had to walk them through why that happened and what that was and why that ended up being, you know, something that would have taken a sprint to develop these three stories into why it took four sprints to develop it. Now, you know, dev effort or dev approach is a completely different conversation, <laughs> one that they don't need to know about. Um, but under like, making them aware of like what the blast rate is, is of introducing something as simple as a checkbox into a UI uh, that does something elsewhere um, is pretty big. And then the second example we did was breaking down a recently released uh, add-on deliverable or a diagnostic um, add-on that we, we, we offer with a few products, um, kind of breaking that down into saying, hey, this is like how a feature gets made. It starts out as one thing. Um, so we start from like just generating a CSV file. And then from there, we work it up into 65 different other requirements that come together holistically to be generating a CSV file that is reflective of like, we produce a CSV file that is read by this, it's ingested by the platform and it renders in um, completely different fashion to kind of display the data that is produced for the client in this way. Um, kind of going from one to 65 and illustrating that journey um, has been huge. So I think now we've kind of also, we've got the benefit of reaching a critical mass where the stakeholders, they're bought into this. They they understand that software does come out of the trade-off. There is a necessary tax to pay some time in terms of like 
it's better to bite the bullet now, get get something that's acceptable to the client, and then wait for some of the better stuff to come along the way. Like it's, it's almost more important to prove to the client that we have a commitment to this software mindset um, than it is to deliver everything all at once in kind of that old school waterfall fashion. Interesting. I love the part where you're educating your users. Are they your users or clients? Uh, who are you doing this for? Um, our, our, your internal sales, right? Yeah, yeah. So we we call it we we refer to them as champions. So it can be client services, operations, and sales. Sales and service are pretty closely aligned, but operations is a is another pillar in the organization, uh, which kind of stands alone and kind of has their own priorities, uh, similar to like product leadership and sales and service. Hmm, this is pretty cool. I, I don't hear about this pretty often. Usually what I see in here is someone on the executive level saying things like, hey, I've been a developer 25 years ago. I know how things are done. You don't need to teach me that. I don't need, you need to tell me that. So yeah, I am impressed. So, okay, let's move forward. You said that there are three steps of that you guys are using uh, in a delivery is a discovery, development, deployment. And my understanding is deployment includes the go-to-market activities. And again, if I understand your industry correctly, you're developing things for specific engagements, and that's when you give them to the customer, which is effectively what go-to-market is. That, that, that's kind of right on the money. When we're deploying something, it, um, we usually, we know that the MVP for the service, or at least the MVP for the add-on that we want to make available for the service, uh, we deem it market ready. Um, and we deem it ready for client use and internal use at that point. So let me ask you this, and uh, I understand that it's a little fuzzy, um, this whole thing, but for your deployment, since you're deploying solutions based on what you've been asked to do, rather than building things for the market. So there's really not that much of trying to get to the market, getting a market share, you know, fighting for your place under the sun. Um, I, I failed to capture that. I failed to get the idea that you guys have a marketing strategy or going to market strategy as a whole based on what I hear, based on what you guys are doing and how you're doing it. Uh, it it's, it's a bit of a dance. Um, so, I mean, in our, in our portfolio, we've got a pretty expansive portfolio, but we're kind of trying to streamline and standardize. So when we have these um, software-oriented um, solutions, they're designed to kind of, right now we're kind of tackling solutions that are like the majority of our portfolio. And then there's like a pretty extensive long tail that we'll need to address eventually. Um, so when we're doing these deployments, they're kind of these, these um, solutions that are designed to meet in at scale, the needs of multiple clients on a global level um, to answer one problem or offer a suite of diagnostics to to offer analytics for one problem. Um, so thankfully, we're kind of exempt from, you know, kind of building these one-off pieces of software for clients. But when when it comes to deploying these new services to market, it, it becomes a bit of a full court press internally and externally. So we're working with product marketing to identify the account segments that we need to go after. So that's kind of hand in hand with, with the uh, commercial stakeholders. We've got to develop a pitch deck. We go through an exercise with our sales organization to understand, make sure you know how to sell it. So we, we kind of use this um, program that we, we sit in on and we help and we kind of poke and prod when the sales team goes through it, but we call it pitch perfect. Um, it's been something that's been working pretty well within our organization. So we just coach them through 15 minutes or they, they get an opportunity to pitch for 15 minutes. We give them some pointers and kind of try to poke holes and see how well they actually know and understand what the solution capabilities are. Um, we do a pretty big mailing or we do a pretty big communication blitz um, in what product marketing is able to do um, and leveraging them in that way. Um, and then on the internal side of things, we're going through that, um, making sure that we're doing end-to-end -end testing um, with the internal users. We kind of do all-day training sessions around the world for our associates that are getting trained up on how to execute these new solutions. So be it client service users, or operations users were really doing a full court press right off the bat for you know up to a month until we go to market that way when we turn the switch on we're ready to go we have leads generated from the marketing blitz that kind of pre precedes the internal training so we get that critical mass we get the salespeople trained first they go out they start pitching by the time we finish up training with our um, internal organization we're ready to kind of go um, and then 
we're kind of in that deployment phase where we got a lot of round the clock um, production monitoring, make sure that nothing's going wrong with the solution when it, when it's going to execution. Um, and we're also just making sure that we're getting enough leads through the door that we got critical ma- like critical mass, critical mind share of our internal teams to make sure that they they're they're doing their part what they can to make a commercial impact for it. And then that deployment kind of tapers off after we get through a certain amount of reps, like there's going to be that support spike. And then the user base kind of gets used to things and they get educated. They kind of learn from mistakes um, or we kind of learn from our training mistakes. Um, and we make it a point to like re-educate as needed. And then we kind of see that support burning kind of taper off a little bit. And then it'll spike when we get a new hire class in, or it'll spike when we get a new market or a new methodology supported um, for some of these solutions. So the deployment can definitely be the most fun part. <laughs> like discovery and deployment are definitely really enjoyable. Deployment is so rewarding to get it out there um, because in our organization, it's just kind of like a big event. It's like kind of the you get to be the bell of the ball, kind of traveling around. You help people get excited about the product as much as you can because um, that's that's kind of our role too. We we've got to be evangelists for what we what we're working on. We can't just be doom and gloom or kind of take our lumps a little bit in the back. Um, so that, that's a bit one a, a bit of it what it comes down to as far as deployment. It's a lot of education, making sure documentation is up to snuff. Um, or in our case, sometimes you have to develop internal tools or like an Excel document to kind of guide some things. Now that may be a little counterintuitive with product management, but when it's an engagement that runs on a timeline, sometimes you have to make those sacrifices to um, ensure that like you're delivering on time to a client. You've got to develop a tool to make sure that your teams know what that timeline is to put into a proposal. Um, so it's a lot of developing those like softer tools that we, we, we use as well, making sure those are up to snuff during the deployment phase. Okay. It makes sense. And you said, uh, you have to do the touring, you have to do some other stuff. Is that a part of your product management responsibilities or is that something else? Uh, I was more reflecting on my past experience. So we, we, we have a pretty unique structure again. Um, but we have this role that we refer to as product operations and they're kind of like junior PM, but they're doing a lot of this documentation, um, internal documentation, or they're doing a lot of, a little bit of the legwork to kind of help the PM out. So in my case, when I was a, in product operations, my role was a little bit more uh, oriented to preparing things for survey automation as much as it was contributing to discovery and some stories where I could. Um, it's doing a little bit of this like pre-wiring for the organization to be ready to go. Um, that, But the product manager, in my experience, um, when we've done trainings, I'll definitely do a training here and there. Um, it, it's a great way to become more visible to the organization. Again, like education is a huge priority for us in the past year or so. Um, so being able to be visible to the org and making sure that they know that we have a product management team and that they can, that, that you can, they can kind of put a, a face to a name, so to speak, um, is invaluable too. So those training sessions are a really good vehicle to build that credibility within the organization too. And since we're talking about responsibilities and specifically about product management responsibilities, I, I wanted to ask you, as it pertains to your organization, about the product management role. I keep saying it in almost every episode that product manager is a thankless job. If the product is successful, then it was a team effort. But if the product has failed, that's your failure, your individual failure. So what does it look like from your organization, from your organization's point of view? Where does, uh, what do you guys stand on that? Uh, it's a little bit different. I mean, part of the pitch that my manager has kind of made is like, you get, you kind of get a target on your back. So you, like you, the good and the bad is that you become very visible in the organization very quickly. Um, <laughs> as much as it can be a thankless, thankless task, like there's definitely that. There are definitely those days where you just feel like no one knows anything that you're working on and you feel underappreciated. But um, more often than not, you do become the go-to person for everything. So you, when there's a CSAT that comes through for your product, like people will forward that to you and be able to be like, this is great. This is just what the client needed. Like, like your work is invaluable. Um, kudos to you for working on this. But when something goes wrong, conversely, you are also the first person. You're kind of Johnny on the spot to fix everything. So if you've got a production issue related to your product, you better be on call. You better be able to figure it out. And you better be able to triage and get through this and come up with a solution and a resolution to move beyond that. Um, and 
salvage the engagement if you if if it comes to that those dire circumstances um but we we do a lot of communication where our kind of work we put our name on things so people know that when something goes well they can reach out to us and they do reach out to us um or when something goes wrong they know exactly who to go to to um kind of chew out a little bit too so you get as much as the glory you get um all everything else that comes along with it too um you become uh I'm trying to think of the word to describe it, but uh, I think I might have had a better app description for it. But um, you get a lot of, as much as the guts, you get the glory too. So it's kind of take it as it comes. It'll kind of change day to day. Interesting. Interesting. Definitely has not been my experience, uh, at least almost never. And I'm really happy you guys have it this way. Um, I ha- I'm happy you guys have a different leap. I, I really am. And um, from from what I've seen, it's one of the things that uh, I've heard that scares people away from being a product manager. Um, you know, it's kind of like, what do you mean no one ever stops by and say thank you? Yep, that's pretty much what it is. And, and that's great that you guys uh, have it uh, have it this way. So I want to roll back a little. And uh, you mentioned that there's a if there's a mistake, there's your re-education and that you guys have been big on education for the past year and exchange as the whole. So I wanted to ask this question. Uh, whatever happens if you guys have deployed something and it was a failure and how you guys deal with it? Yeah, it's happened. Um, it's happened. <laughs> um, we can't all have success stories. I wasn't the product manager and I wasn't um able to contribute much but when one thing that comes to mind is we um, released an application for a general general availability um, a couple of years back and the QA was uh, a little bit different it was a it was an, it was a project that had changed PM ownership several times this was um, this was about a two-year project that took about five years to bring to general availability release. Um, so definitely a labor of love by the end of it. <laughs> um, and there were just some very different practices um, on that team at the time. It, um, it was a very interesting team dynamic. So when it was released for general availability, the application, which was mostly leveraged by internal users, was definitely just not ready for release. Um, I can't comment too much on the QA, but it was just done not the right way um, to the point where uh, the UI would be irresponsive to a user's action. So, like there would be the UI was not talking to the backend, and the backend was not talking to the UI. So the, the application itself was not usable. <laughs> so. Not- was that a design flaw? Was that the application not tested properly? What actually went wrong? Uh, it was definitely testing practices. Um, and that was partially due to some of the relationships on that team. So it's a little bit of a mix of vendor versus uh, internal. So kind of lost in translation kind of thing going on there with um, with an organization that had really didn't really it it was an inexperienced product organization and we kind of inherited that uh coming from a more experienced organization marginally more experienced rather um and it was released kind of in triage mode for about a week to the point where it had to be rolled back to the previous application that this was supposed to replace and then it was pretty much two months of doing things the right way to get it back out into release state um that's how that that was pretty big. Um, personally, I've had a, f- a few issues with the with the solution that I brought to market, where you know the bucks got stopped somewhere. Um, so, in the case of like pretty not so great circumstances, uh, going through raw data to kind of qualify some things, or being able to be uh, on the spot to help triage and engagement that's going on in Japan, definitely been in there or um, being kind of boots on the ground for engagements in Europe uh, in early morning hours to make sure that those uh, operations personnel are able to do their job and learning from mistakes as quickly and as efficiently as you can to uh, to make sure you write down things. That's definitely uh, happened. Or um, I believe uh, heavens knows that um, you get a release out and, you know, stuff happens and um, maybe it's a misrequirement or it's maybe um, 
a QA miss. Um, more often than not, it's a miss requirement from the PM side or the PO side, uh, depending on what your organization is like. And you identify the need for the hotfix, and you've got to you got to manage that. You got to go through the senior QA engineer to get clearance to get your hotfix deployed. You have to get grilled and. Um, you said you got grilled on that. Is that like a lessons learned? Why did that happen? Kind of a grill or. Yeah, you got to do that like SWAT meeting right afterward. Oh, it's like, okay. uh, or or it's like in in the go no go. It's like okay, hey, we got this branch ready to go. Uh, we identified the issue. It's like, okay. So why didn't you do this in the first release? It's just like, well, <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, let me ask you this: uh, since you already mentioned that you have dollars tied to your support, therefore you you can measure a support costs directly. How do you guys handle support? What is what is your approach? How do you how do you do this? Yeah, typically we we leverage our product operations role to handle support. Um, so I mean, we're a lean organization. We we to put it in perspective, we as an organization worldwide, we're probably around a thousand users. So we've got about three to five people at any given point supporting all of that input, uh, all that intake. Um, some of that, some of those 1,000 users still leverage a lot of legacy applications. So we we probably see about 50 to 60 percent of that critical volume coming through. But we typically leverage the product operations role as our support um, liaison. But in certain cases, um, kind of a little bit more strategic, we still get like tickets around like feedback or like, hey, why don't I have this feature? That necessitates the need for the product manager to step in or in extenuating circumstances where I maybe have a bit more domain knowledge than the product operations person does at that point. So like um, I, I may know a bit more about a service in the in the uh, product or in the tech stack that they don't. And I can know right away like, oh, I've got to go talk to this engineer who's on our support team. Um, we got to triage this right away. It should be like, I can kind of, kind of like get to that point where like, it's like a sizing exercise. Like you understand just how big of an issue it is by like looking at it and maybe talking to an engineer. Um, like, is it a small or is it a medium or it's like, this is going to take like two or three people plus DevOps to figure out. Um, you kind of get like a feel for that, which also ties into support. We have a rotating system. We refer to it as L3 where um, a member of our onshore team will act as the kind of on-call engineer in addition to their other responsibilities, but like L3, their support burden kind of takes precedence. Um, we rotate them through on a weekly basis for all of our team leads that are onshore. And that's pretty standard situation, at least uh, in most of the delivery organizations. So let me ask you this uh, from this product standpoint, and that's why I was asking about the support. So I would understand what feeds back into the product development. Since we've already talked about PMBPs, um, I understand you guys are developing your products after the initial release. You keep developing features after you've released uh, the initial release or the MVP. So you're consistently supporting the product on the market uh, once it's been out there. What do you? What is your product life cycle? How you define the product life cycle? On average, what is the product's um, lifespan? Is it months, years, day, decades? How do you decide when it's time to retire an existing product? Yeah, that's been a. Um, I wouldn't say retire necessarily, but we definitely reach like a mature, like a maturation standpoint. And I think um, right now we're kind of in a yearly. Uh, cycle or like a, a years long cycle for this. So um, the product that I'm kind of coming off of being the PM, that has been my life for the past two and a half years. Um, and I'm cycling off of that. It's now kind of reached a point of maturity where it's going to get kind of um, included into another team's stack or uh, in their product stack to kind of manage. And I'm going to be transitioning to a new project. The the flagship solution that we have in the platform that has been in market for about four years and it's probably just now reaching the point where we can say that that is also or maybe it was around the three-year mark that it really started to reach um maturity um like we're we're a little bit of an interesting business in that like it really comes down to adoption so once we reach that critical mass of adoption that's kind of where we draw the line of um maturity to kind of move on and kind of go into maintenance mode as opposed to like feature mode. Um, um, so right now we're still on like a pretty big macro cycle for that, but in support, um, we're actively taking feedback. If we put an add on out, that's not 
hitting the mark right away. Like I think there's that quote, like, um, if everyone loved your first release, you probably waited too long to get it out. Um, so it's kind of the way that I've approached like the feedback tickets in terms of got in the backlog. Um, there are definitely some recurring themes, but, uh, we, we try to get like, try to have like a residual backlog review at least twice, if not four times a year, where we just kind of take a step back and be like, okay, here's the ticket volume on this request. Is it worth the time or is it really client specific? And it would kind of like handcuff us to wise to do that. And then uh, we'll, we'll periodically have those conversations to kind of revisit. Or do we have like a backbreaking bug somewhere that's just been lurking that we've been ignoring? Like what are the ankle biters? Um, do we need to like spend a few sprints and just tightening up everything that that will definitely that's been a little bit of um my focus as well like do we need guardrails to introduce based on like tickets um or user errors that we see in the system like how do we address that could we solve that with a product rather than just excessive documentation um so that's that's something that like is a good support learning as well from from my perspective Uh Uh-huh. And here comes the tricky question. Uh, There are different names for this. So we're going to use features and capabilities and let's stick with features for simplicity's sake. Have you ever had a feature of the product uh, during the product development that you absolutely wanted to take to the market, but were unable to do so? And why? Yeah, uh, I've got a few. There is um, one that comes immediately to mind is um, there was an add-on. Uh, when I was elevated into the product manager role, there was an add-on that was kind of in flight and I wanted to take it to market. We had done, we had gotten heavy commercial signal that this was kind of like a make or break deliverable for several clients in a region. Um, it was going to unlock that region to kind of a different user base that we hadn't been exposed to. And it got to the point where we were, we thought we were ready to commercialize and we couldn't come to agreement on a price. And then the loudest voices in the room for the commercial stakeholders couldn't align. Um, they couldn't agree that it was actually valuable anymore. So we've done the dev work. We've got the feature flag on. We're kind of waiting to go. And it's kind of one of those things where it's still there. We could still turn it on tomorrow if we absolutely needed to, but we couldn't get the signal validated. Uh, we kind of, it was kind of one of those moments of where we acted. Um, in good faith with commercial um, and maybe we should have done a little bit more homework to kind of qualify that a bit more but we we acted on signal we did what we thought was the right decision in the moment and right now it's just it's just not the most necessary feature and this is interesting how do you approach the validation is that some kind of a data-driven decisions is that subject matter experts is that product managers got feeling how do you guys approach this um, I would say I, I would use the phrase data informed because it, it, sometimes you don't have the, you, you don't have the data. Uh, like, what do you do? This is one of those situations where we knew how the deliverable was was configured. We could we could reverse engineer the legacy deliverable to 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 meet the need of the product or the add on that we wanted to develop, but um, it was in a pretty operational silo that we couldn't get the information, so we had to rely on commercial. Um, commercial feedback to to go ahead with development, um, and it was something that we just it was it's just one of those situations where you you got to make a decision whether or not to deliver this feature, um, and the voices at the time were louder than what the data maybe suggested or the lack of data suggested, and we kind of took a chance and um, we kind of learned the hard way for that, um, but. <laughs> it kind of goes back. I think we were talking before we went into the to the recording, but um, like, what do you do when you don't have data? Um, <laughs> you kind of have to ask why a couple times to commercial people, um, and sometimes you know, commercials focus at the end of the day is to hit their number, and sometimes um, their feedback can be most influenced by what's preventing them from hitting their number at the time. Um, so you can kind of see these spikes where something is make or break and then what by the time dev is finished it's like onto the next object or onto the next target for the quarter and that can be kind of tough to stomach um and kind of let it silently go away knowing that like damn it i wish we could have done a little bit more to ensure this like had a little bit more valuable value to more users and i wish we could have done a little bit 
things a little bit more differently in discovery to validate this before really going through it. Or uh, you kind of do the postmortem to understand like, okay, why did this work? It was there data that we missed? Um, or like, how, how could we avoid this? Because um, no one wants to work on something that just never sees the light of day. Wouldn't you say it tremendously increases the waste? Uh, I mean, you've worked on it full time. And at the end of the day, after you have delivered it, the feature is there. You just never turn it on. I mean, it's there. You just need to flip the switch. And that's just no one letting you to flip that switch. So my question is, doesn't it create a huge amount of waste? And maybe there are other ways you can you can work this out. Maybe you can work through uh, certain things and reduce that waste through experimentation, prototyping, market testing. I don't know, A-B testing in the market, A-B testing of the features, anything really. And that it would in turn not only will um, decrease the waste, it will also increase your chances of things being approved. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, this was a this was a really commercially specific case where we, we went through that UI UX work screen. We got the deliverable in the way that it needed to look. Uh, we thought we addressed the user needs and it, and to your point, like <laughs> we've got, we've got code out there that just, we haven't been able to turn on for a while. Um, and it's, you don't want to do that from, from a, from a developer, from like a team management point of view, you don't want to necessarily communicate that to your teams all the time or, or you need to like kind of walk the line in terms of how you communicate that to your teams. But it really does call into question like, okay, what could have, what could have made this a little bit more successful or like, how can we, how can we revisit? How can we like rethink getting this to market? Uh, how can we, has the acceptance criteria shifted in terms of turning on that feature flag? Interesting. Um, in one of our previous episodes, we talked about experimentation and failures during the experiment. And uh, we talk about the general notion of how experiments are usually negatively perceived by the upper management because they tend to fail. And, and to us, it's normal. Uh, the experiment failure is good because as scientists tell us, there are no failed experiments, there are data-rich experiments, and that we are naturally l- learning from our failures. And it's kind of understandable if you've guessed all every step of the way your experiment is success and you're just moving on if it failed you get to learn about new edge cases that may be useful later uh you know some things that you haven't foreseen haven't accounted for so in general you arrive at the end with a lot more information about your product product development process and um, in in upper management the experiments perceived negatively because it paints them in a negative light oh you're failing again you're failing again that's not good and um overall what you're saying and what i find genuinely interesting is that even though you have developed features that were wanted and needed by the customer they never made it to the customer and even though you've done the lessons learned postmortem, you have figured out what could have done, could have been done better. It doesn't sound like you got any amount of negative flack from upper management saying you guys wasted the effort or wasted time and resources. And that's interesting because in my previous experience, and this is just the indicative story that I was developing prototype of a product that was parallel to our main core product offering. And I've heard literally from everyone except one single person who sponsored the R&D work that I was doing. You're wasting your time. You should be focused on things that customers want today uh, instead of doing this. And when I was done, it became obvious that instead of focusing on a few customers who were giving us marginally better ROI, uh, we've arrived at the product. They gave us an additional 60 to 80% of revenue per year. And again, in, in your case, um, I'm happy that you didn't get as much negative flack as I got, which is, you know, it's a good thing. Your management is understanding. I'm just trying to understand what was the overall sentiment around the corner office, if the corner office is still a thing. And um, how does it even work that you've developed something you never get to release to the customer and it's okay? I think, you know, tied with our macro cycles being pretty long to, to a certain extent, I think, uh, well, for, first of all, honesty goes a long way um, in my experience. So if you're just upfront with the with the right stakeholders, they can usually, they'll critique and they'll probably take it up with the manager um, or my manager or our, our unit leader and kind of express their concerns 
in a way that that's happened before. Like when discovery goes awry, I'll definitely like under, I'll, I'll get some flack for, um, like, Hey, this is probably not what you should be doing. But this was a case where, you know, it was, it was already a niche deliverable. And I think that should have been our first hint, um, to really question whether or not it was the right decision to make. But, um, our, our organi- the second point going kind of hand in hand with honesty is like our organization has been remarkably patient. So the MVP for our flagship product compared to what it was four years ago to what it is now is, is night and day different. And the organization's kind of come around to understanding good things come to those who wait. Like MVP is truly MVP sometimes. And we just have to iterate off of it. Um, And maybe it's a unique circumstance. Like it sounds like it is. I know that like for this one that has, (laughs) that's never saw the light of day. um, There are equally frustrating things where there's, there are other products out there where people are definitely like pissed off that like something is not out there or something just missed the mark completely. Um, I think it's, chalk it up to just like organizational patience and understanding that like we're on a journey transitioning from a business that is anchored 10 years in the past and preparing it for it being 10 years in the future. Um, the, yeah, it, it was a one-off circumstance does not happen. Usually if something goes wrong, we will be the first to hear about it. like that. The, the app that I was talking about yesterday or earlier, I don't want to say yesterday, uh, you know, Compare contrast my one-off little add-on deliverable with this application being just unacceptable for general release. You had, you know, the entire, like I would call it C-suite if we were an independent business, but um, the most senior stakeholders in the business unit were pretty much on the phone with our product leadership organization, just trying to understand what the hell happened here uh, and why. And this is unacceptable. You need to understand, like there is that negative failure aversion to failure um that comes out and and i think there there was that some that's like still below the surface a little bit but um we're in an incredibly client sensitive business where if if like you only get one shot to make a first impression and then the client may not want to talk to you for another 12 months um so there is like this aversion like if it's not ready for clients then like just do what you have to do to make it client acceptable and that we'll take it from. So don't release it until it's ready. Exactly. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of influenced my approach as a PM. Like I, and make like, I take, a, I, I consider each bug that we kind of get through into a release. Like, is this a blocker? Yes or no. Or is this edge case valid? It's just like, yeah, it, it's valid, but like, or maybe it's like a super edge case, but in this case, like I want to avoid, kind of shipping bad code and I want you to avoid having bad code go out under your name. So let's take the time, let's do the due diligence and just make sure that like anything that goes into release is buttoned up top to bottom. So we're nearing the wrap up of this episode and I want to ask a couple of standard questions that I have for each guest on my podcast. And first is obviously, uh, what do you think about working from home, working remotely? How does it affect you if it affects you, uh, given our current situation? Well, you know, the afternoons have been a little bit different. Um, my, I'm used to like my day starting, I'm used to doing the mornings from home with like standups at a being, you know, usually split between onshore offshore. So getting on India time or talking to Europe a little bit earlier in the morning. But uh, the afternoons have been where it's just like, uh I really feel like I should be in the office right now. I'm kind of going crazy working from home all the time now and stuff. I don't, I don't usually like it. I don't like not being able to walk down the hall or, you know, my UI UX designer is kind of at the end of our bench seating or my, my product leader is sitting next to me in the bench. So it's just like not having those people there to kind of just bounce off random ideas and just like gut check a decision or like, get a quick hit or a quick read from someone in the office really sucks or being able to talk to my lead, um, my, my eng lead and my QA lead are both in our office. So it's just like not, not being able to go over and ask them like, Hey, how's testing going? Or like, Hey, does this like story make sense? Does this like scope make sense? Or is there anything missing from here that you want me to like, like, is there anything we can do to improve this? Not having that is definitely coming through a little bit more and that's been challenging. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I personally had experience working from home anywhere from a single day to just a couple of days to full time to having been being in the office uh, full time. And, and I get it. it. It's hard to change your habits when you can't have face to face with your subject matter experts, clients or team members and it, Slack or Teams or whatever it is, uh, if you don't have right habits and sometimes it's just not it's just not that close or not that personal and you feel like you're missing out on something so yeah i get it it's it's challenging yeah the biggest thing is also like missing out on users um i mean just being able to like walk and do like a quick gut gut check with someone like internal like hey what's what do you think of this (laughs) and yeah if your users are sitting in the next room or in the same building at least it's definitely easier than trying to connect to them if they're thousands of miles away in a different time zone. I, I can definitely relate to that. Yeah, I guess it makes you appreciate the luxury that you have that makes you appreciate the little things. But overall, it's been like kind of same old, same old. <laughs> Great. And the last question for today, actually, the last question for me is, um, do you have any questions for me? So let's turn the tables and uh, ask me anything. Uh, let's just not try to solve the world hunger just yet uh, let's try to limit ourselves to something that can be answered in a few minutes yeah yeah um you know in my nascent experience i guess how i mean have you ever had to like ship like a product that kind of blew up once it made its way into production or like in in general release like just missed the mark kind of going completely against the grain of everything in discovery and if so how did you kind of manage that situation Thank you. That's a great question. Uh, yes, of course. Obviously, you know every product manager has failures, has flops, has things that didn't work out. Uh, this one in particular that I wanted to talk about, uh, it was developed as a part of the uh, concept of endless aisle. So I was working on the product that was a retail point of sale system, and it was popular thing back in the day to have an endless aisle. So if you order something online, you can get it in the store. If you order something in the store, it can be shipped to your home, uh, to your home. And it just the, the, the concept of endless aisle is that you order anywhere you receive anywhere. And uh, part of uh, a mentality at the company I was working for was, uh, can we get it for free? Whatever that is, can we get it for free? Uh, why do we have to pay for it? And I was looking for solutions that would allow us to do things uh, inexpensively or for free or uh, somewhere on the you know shoestring budget. Uh, we were able to find a few solutions that worked for us. I developed that into a prototype. Uh, we've uh, built it as a and as an MVP. So we figured that these things are working. Uh, we started doing customer demos. We started uh, showing it to the real customers. We actually had a customer who wanted to buy it and he was willing to sign the contract for a year to start paying for it. And the whole thing came down crushing. Uh, when we figured out it, it's unable to do certain things. And um, developing the required integrations would take a lot longer given the new idea that um, companies management had so it basically literally in the middle of a road we've decided to change wheels and everything kind of crashed and uh it's it's it's, it's, it wasn't that of uh, that it wasn't that uh problematic we were able to figure out what to do with the client uh, we were able to kind of give them give them um, different incentives or different things uh, to kind of please him and, and alleviate the situation. Uh, of course, as I've uh, said, uh, you know, if, if it's a failure, it's yours. Uh, I failed to develop a product, which was a good thing because we've figured out through the true experimentation in the market, we figured that this is not the, the activities, this is not the product we want to be in because it doesn't really align with uh, what the company wants to do. And at the same time, we were able to figure out that it wasn't the product that was wrong. 
it was the market niche that we've attacked, that niche was wrong. We were going after kind of low to mid-level market because we thought, well, that's where the numbers are. But given the complexity of the task, given the complexity of the problem we're trying to solve, it would actually make sense to go after upper segment of the market. And instead of having a product per as a software product, it makes sense to have it as a service. So we've, um, instead of building a product and selling it to 5,000, 10,000, 100,000 customers um, on the cookie cutter approach, we've uh, dropped that, that considered a failure, but we were able to transform that into uh, a service offering. And through the service offering, we were able to make a lot more money and we were able to get higher caliber customers and we were able to stand up a whole new practice, which is, again, I would, it's, it's kind of one of those things where you have a, f- a failure that you turn into success. But uh, from the product perspective, it's a failure from uh, prototype going to market. It's, it's complete failure because we did not achieve any of the uh, goals, but as I was saying, oh, every failure is a is an experiment reaching data. Uh, we were actually able to collect enough information to make things right, to turn things around, make things right. It was not a product. It was not even you know it was not even my uh, game, my part of the um, town anymore. Uh, but we were able to use the information that we've collected and get something useful out of it. So did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I, actually, do you have time for one more? Do we have time? Oh, absolutely. Like I said, um, we're not limited. There's no set limit to a length of each episode, at least not yet. It seems like you've got a pretty big experience across industries, but what would you use for um, a KPI for something that is not necessarily revenue generating? How would you gauge um, you know, what, what defines like a healthy product or a successful product in, in your experience when it's, when it's come to those cases? Wow. That's a great question. Thank you. So let me start by saying there's a number of frameworks that you can use. As an example, there's one metric that matters. There's a uh, ARP or pirate metric. There's a uh, Google heart, but if I had to pick one, just one KPI instead of uh, a framework or instead of a number of metrics, I'd say it's adoption. And uh, it's pretty easy to understand that if a product doesn't re- doesn't generate revenue, uh, the only other way you can judge uh, judge if the product is successful is if people are using it, if customers are using it. And that's ultimately why you're building a product. You're building a product not because you're bored, although there are people like that, uh, you're building the product because somebody needs a solution to a problem. And if your solution works, if people like it, then people are going to use it. If your solution doesn't work, that no matter how sophisticated, complicated, or uh, elaborated your product is, people are not going to use it because it's a bad product. The product is not successful. And I've seen this happen uh, many times when people were forced to use uh, some sort of a solution. They were forced to use a specific um, data storage platform. They were used to forced to use a specific CRM and they hated it so much that they ended up using their own tools. They ended up using Excel or they ended up using uh, unlicensed or un, um, not allowed or prohibited methods of exchanging the data, thus um, endangering business continuity and security of the business because the product was not um, was not good enough. The product was not uh, user friendly because the product ultimately was not successful, even when users are forced to use a specific product. So, as I said, there's a number of frameworks. Uh, there's a number of way, number of ways to measure it. But if I had to pick a single KPI, I would say it's adoption. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. I'm, I'm transitioning to a project that's a little bit more. Um, internal focus and not necessarily revenue generating more more geared towards usability and satisfaction so it's just helpful to get your point of view on that glad this answer was useful and uh, 
that's a wrap. That's our episode. Thank you very much, Peter Dwyer. Yeah, thanks for having me, Vlad. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for being such an amazing guest on our show. Hopefully, we'll hear you uh, many more times. And uh, wish you luck in your uh, career development. And uh, as always, uh, feel free to get back to us uh, with any questions. Any questions for Peter or myself can be sent to the email askvlad at vigrubman.com or visit us on the web at vigrubman.com slash podcast. listening to the real world product management and I've been your host Vlad Grubman until the next time